Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening. Here we are. Welcome to ADH. I'm Alan Jones. One shouldn't speak in hyperbole, or as, <laughs> as Julia Gillard once called it, hyperbole. Uh, but tonight is a special night for Australia. The Sydney's Olympic Stadium is packed for the big fo football women's semi-final between England and Australia. You know all that. But tens of thousands around Australia will be watching. Governments sensibly have opened infrastructure facilities so that people can share the electric atmosphere of the evening. Now, the New South Wales government has opened two big stadia because the match is a sellout and people have filled the Western Sydney Stadium, which is in Parramatta, and the Sydney Football Stadium in Moore Park. This World Cup has been a success beyond any reasonable expectation. 1.75 million tickets have been sold across 64 games, the most successful in the tournament's history. Tonight marks the first time the Australian team has progressed to the semi-final of a FIFA Women's World Cup. The Sydney Opera House, as I speak to you, is illuminated in green and gold. Other Sydney landmarks and the New South Wales government's social channels are green and gold. The live broadcast streams in Cathy Freeman Park, which is just outside Stadium Australia, where Cathy was unbelievable in 2000, it'll once again be activated for the Matildas game. Now, this is an old rivalry, another tantalising instrument in historic encounters between England and Australia. We took them on in the men's cricket and we retained the ashes. We took them on in the women's ashes and won a tight contest. And last weekend, we won the World Cup final in netball. England came second in all of them. Now it's the Lionesses versus the Matildas. You've got to wonder though, I mean, how much do our girls have left in the tank? The Swedish coach of Australia, Tony Gustafsson, can't praise him enough. He's done a splendid job, lifting not just the spirits of the Matildas, but at the same time, lifting the spirits of a nation. The whole nation was watching. People who didn't know anything about soccer or women's soccer were going nuts and screaming at the TV screen. The coach has stressed since Sunday, rest and recovery, but we should be cautious and ask how much more juice can coach Gustafsson squeeze out of this team. I've said it before, you see, rugby league is a tough game. They go for 80 minutes. These girls endured an exhausting 120 minutes on Saturday against France, running like gazelles up and down the field and then holding their nerve in that breathtaking and heart-stopping penalty shootout. Tonight will be tough. England are the European champions. In this World Cup, they've dominated possession against every opponent. It's true that the Matildas beat the Lionesses early this year in a so-called friendly match, but this is a stat. It ended a 30-match unbeaten run for England. They are some team. England would expect tonight to dominate possession. The Matildas will have a long night of defence. Think about it. According to the analysts, England players have received 2,757 passes, more than any team in the World Cup bar Spain, who are already into the final. Australia, 1,626 passes. But for England, it's not only how long they keep the ball, it's how efficient they are with it. And on the figures and statistics, and statistics can make a lie of predictions, we all know that. But on the statistics and the data from this World Cup, our Matildas will be hemmed into our own half for long periods. But 
This bloke's smart, Gustafsson, our coach. He's been here before. He was the assistant coach to America when they won the last two World Cups and the Olympic gold medal. He will have coached the Matildas to be comfortable without the ball for long periods. And then when the opportunity arises, let loose the pace of Caitlin Ford, Hayley Rasso and the great Sam Kerr to counter-attack. And then the remarkable Mary Fowler ready to do the job. And don't forget their goalkeeper. Oh, what a star, Mackenzie Arnold, who has conceded only three goals in the whole tournament. As I said earlier, the one question that won't be answered till the girls hit the playing arena, how heavy are their legs? The two captains, Sam Kerr and Millie Bright, are actually teammates in the English league playing for Chelsea. The question that will electrify Australia is a simple one. How much space will the great Australian captain and record goal scorer Sam Kerr be given? Because that may determine the outcome. I expect this to be tight. We've won the Ashes. We won the Women's Netball World Cup. England beaten in all three. What's going to happen tonight? Look, I've got a program for you tonight, I can tell you that. We'll bring you up to date with what is happening in America. Donald Trump now facing 91 charges. There is, I believe, a new star in the Federal Labor Party. Yep, her name, a lady, Madeleine King. I'll tell you why, and at the same time highlight the further damage that the arrogant and incompetent Chris Bowen is doing to Australia. Farmers are under the pump, Bowen again. He thinks he can compulsorily acquire land or bribe farmers to surrender prime agricultural land to build wind and solar farms and transmission lines. Farmers won't roll over that easily, I can tell you. Oh, one other football story. The Prime Minister got it wrong again. He's now backing off at 100 miles an hour on this public holiday stunt. The other point I'd make at this stage of the program, Vietnam Veterans Day is this Friday the 50th anniversary of the end of our involvement in the Vietnam War from 1962 to 1975. It was one of the longest conflicts of the 20th century. 60,000 Australian defence personnel served in Vietnam during the 10 years of the war. 523 Australians died and almost 2,400 were wounded. Public opinion in Australia turned sour. The groundswell of support for the anti-war movement grew as the war dragged on. The national disgrace was how our Vietnam veterans were treated when they returned home. Many were spat at in public. In some RSL branches, they were ignored and made aware that their presence wasn't welcome, having served in by what was by some considered to be not a proper war. I don't mean any disrespect, but too often on these commemorative days, there are a lot of platitudes. The RSL president, Ray James, New South Wales president, is himself a Vietnam veteran. On Friday, Vietnam Veterans Day, the RSL will make a formal apology for the way Vietnam veterans were treated after a conflict that divided the nation. Ray James will say on Friday that RSL New South Wales acknowledges a generation of veterans who are still healing and that they publicly recognise the RSL's past mistakes ahead of Vietnam Veterans Day. He will say, as a Vietnam veteran myself, President Ray James will say, it's extremely important to me that all veterans know that RSL New South Wales is committed to ensuring that no veteran is ever left feeling unwelcome. Well, it is incumbent on us as a nation to act out the hope that when our men and women come home from the theatres of war, they're treated better than were our Vietnam veterans. Yet as we know, in the wake of the Afghanistan conflict, some of our bravest men are to be charged following the Brereton report 
based on the usual ABC story, attacking those who were sent into the unforgiving battlefields of Afghanistan. One wonders whether those seeking now to prosecute returned soldiers would themselves have ever volunteered to carry a gun? Would they have ever faced a bullet in conflict? And that can be asked of our so-called military leaders in starched shirts and epaulets who seek to escape the scrutiny that's now applied to some of our returned soldiers. So spare a thought on Friday for our Vietnam veterans all around the country. You served when you were called upon to serve. Our gratitude is due to you. In early July, Peter Dutton took a swipe at some of Australia's largest companies. I suspect those companies, without doing any homework, lining up to support a constitutionally enshrined Indigenous voice in the Constitution. A race-based change to the Constitution. Rio Tinto, Wes Farmers and BHP, for example, each company donating $2 million to the Yes campaign. What arrogance to believe they could speak on behalf of their shareholders, to say nothing of their customers. Well, Peter Dutton was right when he said, these companies lack a significant backbone. Oh, well, that's corporate Australia, isn't it? And that many people in corporate Australia were craving popularity and trying to appease those in the Twitter sphere by supporting The Voice. Well, now the Prime Minister's told the ABC, and I quote, what I'm not going to do is to go down the cul-de-sac of getting into every detail because that's not a recipe for success, unquote. I'd suggest that our Prime Minister is not aware of the detail. His story changes every day. He's now saying that his government rejects the notion of paying Indigenous Australians compensation, or what they call reparation, for their treatment by British colonists. Really? Well, everywhere you turn, one of the faces of the Yes campaign is Thomas Mayo, the voice of the campaign, the voice of the Yes campaign. He has called for, quote, reparations and compensation to be paid to Indigenous Australians. I mean, I'm sorry, I don't think the Prime Minister tells the truth. It's a different story depending on the audience to whom he's speaking. It brings us to the Prime Minister's announcement yesterday that his government will spend $7 million over the next two years to fund a tournament in partnership with the National Rugby League called the Pacific Rugby League Championship. Funny that. Still no money for flood victims or for aged care or for critical hospital needs, but $7 million for rugby league. I've got no issue with supporting Pacific Islander sport. Some of these Pacific countries boast impressive rugby league teams and sport brings people together. Pacific Island players playing in our lucrative rugby league competition help support their families at home. But here's the rub. The NRL's got plenty of money, but they get seven million of taxpayers' money from the Prime Minister. And the NRL in return supports and campaigns for the voice to parliament. Does this pass muster? Is this corrupt? Where's our ICACs of this world? Then there's Marcia Langton, the voice activist, with a stunning threat to the Australian public. Well, actually, it's a fairly exciting threat. This Indigenous academic and strong proponent of the voice says that if Australians vote no, here it comes, we won't get a welcome to country again. Her words, quote, how are they going to ever ask an Indigenous person, a traditional owner, for a welcome to country? So there's a threat, vote no as a nation, and we won't get a welcome to country again. Stop cheering. But think seriously, vote no, and there'll be no welcome to country again, she says. I'm sure you can't wait to get to the polling booth. The Australian newspaper ran the story yesterday. I put it up on my Alan Jones Facebook page. 
People are understandably pretty excited by Marcia Langton's threat. There were hundreds of comments. Add yours to my Facebook page. And it says, as if there weren't enough reasons already, but I hope that is a promise. David said, nice try welcoming me to my own country. I'm fourth generation. Colin, how can I be welcomed to a country that I was born in? Leslie, it happens so often that it doesn't mean anything anymore. Noel says, awesome. I'm definitely voting no. And Luciano says, Marcia, can I have that in writing? You see, the public are awake up to this meaningless virtue signalling. Prime Minister, walk into the parliament today and as Robbie Catter suggested last night, take practical action in remote Indigenous communities. Jacinda Price will tell you what to do and where to go and what to do. But this voice proposal is so political, the Prime Minister won't even give consideration to what Jacinda Price is saying. And she's been saying it for years. How to improve the livelihoods of disadvantaged Indigenous Australians. Prime Minister, you've got the resources now to make the change, use them. And remember one thing, amongst others, no amount of painting Qantas planes, yes, or rewarding rugby league for endorsing the S campaign, to say nothing of what the big corporates will want from government for stumping up money, none of this will work. The public sees all these initiatives as a craven determination to use taxpayers' money to buy support. Have a look at the polls, Prime Minister. It's because of this political behaviour and the bullying and the intimidation and the name calling that goes with us, all this represents an emphatic reason to vote no. And as I said, if Marcia Langton says voting no means no more welcome to country, we can't wait for voting day. Look, for people watching this program right across Australia and indeed around the world, it may surprise you to know that large tracts of Australia's productive land are in the middle of a drought. There are farmers writing to me who are feeding their stock and it's a very expensive game. I also read about the so-called bush summits. By and large, it's a lot of hot air. There are two words rarely mentioned, water and dams. 21 years ago, I co-opted some of the great practical and successful thinkers in this country, the late Kerry Packer, the late Dick Pratt, the late media genius Sam Chisholm, John Singleton, Bob Mansfield, John Hartigan on behalf of News Limited and myself. We stumped up our money from Water Summit, a lot of research to clear the path for harvesting and using water 21 years ago. Yet how many hundreds of millions of dollars have gone into futile drought relief, which does nothing to ensure that we won't be back in drought again? It is a dishonest argument that the nation is short of water. We only use at most 6% of our available water. For example, Lake Argyle in Western Australia releases 50 tonnes of water a second. Only 10% of it is used in the ore irrigation system. 45 tonnes a second is pushed into the Timor Sea. 4 billion litres a day. Yet the catchment area of the Fitzroy River is 50% greater than that of the Ord. Get your head around this, which won't get a mention at any bush summit. Queensland's northeast has four times the water of the Murray-Darling Basin. The total flow down the Murray-Darling Basin is less than 23,000 gigalitres. In the northeast coastal region of Queensland, that's heading up around Cape York, 70,000 gigalitres flow into the sea. I've argued for 30 years that we've left our brains behind. A gigalitre is a thousand Olympic-sized swimming pools. So northeast Queensland has 70,000 multiplied by 1,000 Olympic-sized swimming pools flowing into the ocean. Go further west, 
the Gulf of Carpentaria, it's got 130,000 available gigaliters. 130,000 times 1,000 Olympic-sized swimming pools. Take Sydney, 400 billion litres of sewage. Now, sewerage are the pipes. Sewage is the stuff that goes through the pipes. 400 billion litres of sewage, much of it untreated, goes into the ocean off the coast of Sydney every year. Or 1,000 Olympic-sized swimming pools of water goes to waste every day. But we can't harvest water. We can't build dams. How useless can government be? But we can build a 3,200 kilometre pipeline to carry gas from Papua New Guinea to Brisbane, and we can build a useless railway line from Darwin to Alice Springs, but we can't harvest water, we can't transport water, we can't dam water. Jack Beale was a minister in the New South Wales government in the 1940s. He proposed the development of the Clarence Basin in northern New South Wales to create a giant water and power project that would dwarf the Snowy Mountain Scheme. He said, a nation can't afford to let resources remain idle, even if it has to build pyramids. The pathetic behaviour of successive governments on the issue of harvesting and damming water dishonours people like Jack Beale. But it is now worse than that because, with all this Aboriginal heritage stuff, wind farms change changing the landscape and ruining agricultural land because renewable energy, of course, will save the planet, won't it? The place is being run by tossers. A tosser is defined as an obnoxious person. So speaking of tossers, if Bowen and co think that the farmers are going to be a pushover and will surrender their agricultural land to transmission lines, wind farms and solar farms, the arrogant and incompetent Bowen will need to think again. I've got on the line with us tonight, a farmer from the Riverina region, James Gooden, and he's going to talk out. James, I'm glad that you had to raise these concerns about this nonsense, but just a bit about you. You were born and bred in the Riverina, and now you have people like Bowen and Co seeking to destroy what you've built, a prime agricultural industry. Uh, thank you for, uh, for taking this time to talk with us. Uh, yes, it's, 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 it's almost comical, isn't it? It's, uh, you just wonder really uh, where, where the common sense in all this is. Uh, the decision making, the planning, the overlays, uh, just anyway, I'm going to jump in to say our position in the Riverina is we, we are environmentalists, we are, we are interested in where the voice goes and we are pro-nuclear. We, we believe that something like the voice, for example, is dividing the nation. We don't think it's bringing it together. But the biggest topic here we've got tonight is the environment. We're pro the environment. And uh, uh, we just believe we need good leadership. Now, as you know, we've been sort of lobbying for a while and this, this groundswell has just grown and it is just growing to quite incredibly, it's growing so quickly across the eastern seaboard and from north to south. And, you know, I was in Melbourne yesterday for the uh, rally. I'm back in Cootamundra this afternoon. Uh, I, all I can say is I'm absolutely impressed with the groundswell and the people I've met along this journey of passion. Like, I've got to absolutely just applaud the people that are standing up and taking a stance. Uh, I was in Tamworth, as you know, on Thursday and Friday, uh, and I ducked down to Sydney and then went to Melbourne. But it's it, the, it's incredible the number of people that are just on board. My phone is just an encouragement to stand up, make a stand, and all those people in Melbourne who turned up to the rally yesterday, I absolutely applaud you. Because so this is, James, just to, just, just to fill our viewers in, I mean, this is about prime agricultural land being surrendered, this is what the intention is, to transmission lines and wind farms and solar farms and so on. Um, 
Does the, does the government of Bowen and Co think they're going to get away with this? Oh, I think they think they are, but the, the we want a set of inquiry. Well, they think they are, but the, the, the masses are going to speak. I mean, common sense is going to prevail. They, 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 they're not going to be able to stop what this movement that's happening. And the reason I mentioned those three key points in the beginning of this intro is we're at a point in time of politics in Australia where some big changes are going to happen and it might be out of the control of the people that are actually in power at the moment or of all executive positions. You, you, you can see that there's been things pushed upon the people to destroy their livelihoods. Have a look around Tamworth when there's there's people in the north that are, are losing 50% of their equity because a transmission line has a right of pass, a right of passage just to divide their place. You've got a complicit landholder in a corner of an area, a shire or a development, and then the, the renewable company can come in, uh, sorry, not renewable, a transmission line company can just go and cut an easement through because they've got the right to move through with whether, whether you like it or not, you can't stop them. And it comes down to exactly as you said, Alan, it comes down to solar, wind and transmission lines, land conflict issues are what our group was formed over. And we're very fortunate. There's only about six people in or eight people in that core group. But the, the, the people in that group are rep, Indigenous representation, land care award winning people, um, tourism of Wagga uh, people, and then people like myself, livestock. Well, just in, come in, back in, and just, just to because people are listening to you in metropolitan Australia and most probably don't have a heightened understanding of this. So basically, a farmer is out there with wonderful land, which he's cultivated over many, many generations. He's a wonderful environmentalist because he wants the land next year to be better than it was last year. So he's the best environmentalist there is. But government, what, can come in? To your farm and say we're going here, and you got no yeah, say. One hundred percent, Alan. And it's a compulsory acquisition is what the problem is. And if we look at where the productive land in Australia is, up and down the eastern seaboard or eastern states, I should say, instead of seaboard, and you overlap it with the map of what the planned transmission is, they mirror each other. You're taking the food bowl of the country, you're running wires all over it, and you're destroying the agricultural production area. You're going to put the ag in the desert and you're going to put the ag in the wrong spots and you're going to consume all this highly productive livestock enterprises, all this cropping country, all the citrus. But, but, but James, 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 just to interrupt you, Bowen says, Bowen says he wants 10,000 kilometres minimum of this stuff. 10,000 kilometres. How much agricultural land and how many farmers are going to be destroyed along the way? Oh, well, it's not going to happen. I mean, seriously, yeah, it, it, they've destroyed Victoria, and we know that, and that's what the uproar is down there. And I feel really sorry for everyone I met down there. There's no way this is going to continue, and that's why I said it's not not if we have a Senate inquiry, it's when. Like, if they want to get off their off their nest down there and actually realise the groundswell in regional Australia is just just growing. And they are. That this is a juggernaut of movement of people that are dis, dis, losing their livelihoods. Absolutely. A, a great, great example is who turns up to the fire to be the fire committee for the in the local area because you've got a renewable per, person who's complicit to a renewable company. He, he's not going to be on the netball committee or his wife's not going to be on the netball committee. The fire committee's not going to have people. We're already scratching for people in regional areas to represent these small communities or regional communities. And we all know that there's a few people that always make make a noise and get things done. But if you're fractionalising these communities, which is just, 
It's, 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 but, it's but just James, so wrong. James, I mentioned earlier there's a drought on, right? And there's always yes. drought somewhere. Now, with our money, taxpayers' money, will government try to buy off the opposition of farmers by simply saying, well, you know, we'll give you tens of thousands of dollars for every wind turbine we shove up on your farm. Are, are they going where's this going to end? Because it's beginning now. Where's it going to end? Uh, I, I think the, this, this is just growing to a level now. It's going to end in a situation where we, we should just get good planning. I think they are listening. I, I truly believe, as you know, I spent time in, in Tamworth and had some great meetings with people. Uh, I was with the PM on a Friday, as you're aware. Um, he was he was reluctant to engage and dismiss our topic on nuclear. But in our opinion, why I started the conversation this evening was about nuclear. It is one part of this this group of conversations or group of plans what we can go forward with. It's a, it's one of the many things and part of the gas, part of the coal, and part of renewable, and it might be wind and solar. Yeah, that's right. I agree with that. I agree with all of that. But I'm just talking to you tonight about the destruction of prime agricultural land and the compulsory acquisition of farmers' yes. properties. Now, where is the opposition here? This is a golden opportunity for a Dutton opposition, if they understood what's going on, to sink this government. I mean, this is appalling. This is socialism at its capital S. Who in the opposition, who in the opposition yeah. is taking up your cause? Uh, look, we're, we're getting a, a, a lot of support, but we're, we're, we're not actually aligning with anyone, but we're actually just making sure the groundswell is growing because we believe, as I said on Monday night... So you night, can stop it? I'm, I'm sure it'll happen. But it's already I'm, beginning. I mean, I, it's already started. When do you stop it? I know that, but because we, uh, it has just grown to such a level so quickly in the last couple of years that I, I believe it will. I, I believe we can. Right. And, well, okay, I'll and tell yeah. you what. I'll tell you what, James, we're out of time, but I'll tell you what, give us a month and I'll have you back on the program and I want yes. to know that it's not 3,000 and 4,000 kilometres of excursions through prime agricultural land. Now, you say it's got momentum. I hope you're right, but there's question times every day. I follow all this. I don't see a syllable raised about this issue. I think Bowen is the most dangerous politician this country's had since the war, and here's a manifestation of it. So why don't we say, I'll have you back in a month. Oh, definitely. I'm, I'm, I'll be available whenever you want, Alan. Okay. But I uh, think, can I just finish on yeah, saying, when, when we educate everyone under the umbrella, and that is the Australian population, they will realise the decisions that they're making on renewables is actually destroying the environment. Correct. We're actually taking yes. a massive backward step by yes. carving big transmission yes. lines yes. through how, pristine environment. You're quite. How do you protect the environment by destroying it? <laughs> well, you can't. Look at our, look at our cliche. Look at our cliche on our letterhead. Yeah. You can't. You can't. You, by destroying the local environment, you can't save the planet. That's and, correct. And, and that's what it comes down that's to. Correct. It's, Okay. All right. I'll see you in a month. I'll see you in a month. Thank you, Alan. I that's appreciate your time. Not at all. What about that? <laughs> yes, I mean, that's just an unbelievable story. I mean, how would you like to be a farmer and you've worked the farm over, your family have worked it for generations and generations, and in comes Bowen and co, and they say, oh, we're going to run transmission lines through here to get the renewable energy onto the grid, and goodbye. We're compulsorily acquiring your land. What kind of joint are we running here? Anyway, there he is. I'll have James back in a month and I hope some progress will be made. 
Look, as I said earlier, it goes without saying that the Matildas are the undisputed current champions of Australia. As I've already said, it's impossible to conceive of any team, individual or entity, to so hypnotise the nation. That said, we as supporters can't get carried away. Tonight against England will be very tough. Our defence will be put to the test. But I've said all that. Amidst all that, one other champion has tentatively emerged. It's another female, a Labor female, a Labor politician, Madeline King, 50 years of age, representing the West Australian seat of Brand. Her father was born in England, but interestingly, on moving to Australia, worked at the Quinana Oil Refinery. In the midst of what can only be described as intellectual impoverishment with the demonisation of coal and gas and a so-called decarbonisation of Australia, Madeleine King has said what a sensible liberal politician should have said long ago. She's the Minister for Resources. Indeed, it's not so far back, remember, that Scott Morrison brought a lump of coal into the parliament to salute the contribution that coal made to the prosperity of all Australians? Well, Madeleine King on Monday at a speech to the Bush Summit in Perth said simply, many East Coast urban Australians have lost sight of where their food, prosperity and energy come from. She reassured our trading partners that Australia was a reliable supplier of iron ore, gas and metallurgical coal. Metallurgical coal is that essential ingredient in the production of steel, wind turbines, one of those widely used building materials on earth. Madeleine King talked about too many Australians losing sight of what the bush represents and its central role in Australia's future. She said on Monday, remember there's a federal Labor minister. In my view, every East Coast-based parliamentarian and journalist should experience Perth Airport on any given Monday or Tuesday at 5am to witness the extraordinary airlift of workers into the north that occurs week in, week out to ensure our nation's continued prosperity off the back of our remarkable geology and the efforts of the resources industry, unquote. She didn't flinch at what at saying what is unspeakable in the language of the Chalmers and the Bowens of this world. She bluntly said that our energy and resource experts were now exports were now close to 500 billion a year. And she said, led primarily by gas, coal, iron ore, gold and aluminium. She further stated the obvious, resources had delivered wealth for more than a century and we're now underwriting a new boom through Western and Northern Australia, which had become, she said, the economic powerhouses of the nation. With a slap in the face to the Teals and the Liberal wets, who are progressively destroying the Liberal Party, she said, the scale of the resources and mining boom in WA and the Northern regions was not appreciated by people in the urban belts of the East Coast who'd lost sight of where the bulk of the nation's wealth comes from. Make this woman leader of the Labor Party. She then said, presumably not having consulted with the intellectually barren Energy Minister Bowen, Australia is a long established, reliable and efficient supplier, she said, of iron ore, gas and metallurgical coal. Right, Madeline, with respect, we used to be. Are we now? Before I get onto that, I'll make the point that Minister King also made that resource companies are the largest employer of Aboriginal people. All of this brings us back to the politically and economically dangerous incompetent Chris Bowen. Madeleine King says Australia's energy and resource exports will now be close to 500 billion a year, led, she said, primarily by gas, coal, iron ore, gold and aluminium. Well, enter this Charlotte and Bowen, 
who at the end of July was sent to Asia, God knows why, to quote, strengthen ministerial and industry connections in support of Australia's role as a clean energy exporter, unquote. Now, you don't need to be too smart to know that our second and third largest export markets are Japan and Korea. But Albanese and Bowen and Chalmers are going on about new emissions laws. My understanding is that concerns have been raised by Japanese Prime Minister Kashida with Prime Minister Albanese. As Michael Bohm recently reminded us, consistent with Madeleine King's observations yesterday, LNG exports hit a record 92 billion, that's gas, and coal 124 billion last year. Bowen doesn't want either. So what kind of economic pit would we sink into without them? So while Bowen's in Asia talking renewable energy, and Madeleine King here is talking about the critical significance to our economy of coal and gas, the question which arises is simple. Do we maintain a highly rewarding export industry, attracting foreign investment and providing energy security to us, our allies and our neighbours? Or as Michael Bohm wrote, quote, do we sacrifice it all in pursuit of unachievable, feel-good emissions targets on the altar of climate change? Well, can you imagine the stupidity? This is a delicate diplomatic problem. And they send Chris Bowen. And following the Bowen visit, two of our key customers are looking now for alternative fossil fuel sources. And as Michael Bowen reminded us, his meeting in India with energy ministers of the G20, this is Bowen, the world's richest nations, where he intended to champion Australia's interests in the clean energy transformation and emission reduction efforts, ended up a disaster. Bowen in India, telling India who want all of our coal, oh no, no, we're getting rid of all that. We'll, we'll give you renewable energy. So bad was the Bowen performance that could only be described as a failure. It's now being said that further G20 meetings will also fail. The critical point is this, as I've said a million times, we've got the world's largest economies, throw in China and India, accounting for three quarters of the world's carbon dioxide emissions. And they show no interest in the theoretical nonsense about planet-saving issues like phasing out fossil fuels and tripling renewable energy. And of course, we've got one Australia, 1.3% of global carbon dioxide emissions, 1.3%. But remember, carbon dioxide, which these wood ducks would never admit, is 0.04% of the atmosphere. Human beings worldwide are responsible for only 3% of that 0.04%, and little old Australia down here, 1.3% of all that. But according to dumbbells like Bowen, we're killing the planet when we're really killing our trading partners and killing the export income that Madeleine King spoke about on Monday. And she's in the same team as Bowen. Here were East Asian economies who make up the bulk of the market for Australian gas and coal exports, and Bowen shows no concern for their energy security. He arrives on their doorstep with a briefcase full of Australia's emissions laws, some retrospective. Japan relies on us for 40% of its LNG. It's an energy deficit nation. Two thirds of its coal comes from us. And when Bowen's confronted by what these unachievable emissions targets will do, all it can repeat, like the nonsense that Albanese and Linda Burney go on about The Voice, it's just a simple little feel good thing on an A4 piece of paper. Bowen actively blowing up the Australian coal and gas industries, but telling Asia, we will be a reliable energy supplier, but the energy will be renewables. You see, not only will we have so much renewable energy for Australia, but we'll have plenty to export to Japan. Next, Bowen will be telling us there are tooth fairies at the bottom of the garden. Japan in particular needs our coal and gas. Bowen gave Japan and India no assurance that this would continue. 
So does Madeleine King's $500 billion in export income go out the window? Japan wants Australia to change our energy policy. Bowen is telling Japan to respect our sovereign policies, a dunce with a capital D. So Japan will turn to the Middle East. And the Japanese Prime Minister has now embarked on a whirlwind tour of the Middle East, culminating in a visit to the major LNG exporters, Qatar. As Michael Bohm writes, this issue has attracted a lot of media attention in Japan, with senior officials accusing Australia of betrayal over energy security. The Wall Street Journal quoted a senior bureaucrat, if this issue can't be resolved, it might undermine long-trusted relations. And Bowen talks about sovereign risk. The sovereign risk is of his making. Madeleine King in his own party outlined that on Monday, she said many East Coast urban Australians have lost sight of where their food, prosperity and energy come from. Australia's energy and resource exports, she said, are now close to 500 billion a year, primarily from gas, coal, iron ore, gold and aluminium. Bowen is putting all of that at risk. I've said from day one, this energy policy of Labor, mimicked by the coalition, member Morrison racing off to Glasgow, I called it a national economic suicide note. Professor Ian Plymer this week, last week on this program, said that if we keep going the way we are, we're heading for bankruptcy. Well, Madeleine King on Monday put a figure on it, $500 billion. Bowen won't come on this program because he can't answer the questions. Where's the 500 billion going to come from in the future? And can the Teals, along with Labor and the Liberal wets, answer the question posed by the Resource Minister, Labor's Madeleine King, a lone public voice in the Labor Party? Have you lost sight of where your food, prosperity and energy come from? The answer is an emphatic yes. Boot them all out, Bowen and co in the Labor Party and the Liberal wets. Well, let's go to Peggy in the United States. But first, it is fair to say that American politics may well be entering its most dangerous period in modern times. On Monday evening, a grand jury in Fulton County, as you've most probably heard already, Georgia, voted to bring a total of 13 felony charges against Donald Trump. Although I have to say there's a story today that the court released a statement about the charges before they'd been signed off by the jury. I mean, you've got to wonder what's going on here. But it means all up, the former president is defending 91 criminal charges. I won't go into the detail. The bulk of them are farcical and driven by Democrat forces. But in relation to the Monday, Monday grand jury decision, the former New Jersey Superior Court judge, Andrew Napolitano said that Trump's call with the Georgia Secretary of State, which seems to have everyone in a tiz, did not warrant charges. Now in the call, Donald Trump appears to say that he wants the Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, quote, to find 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have before we won the state. Now, of course, you can interpret that however you like, but at the same time, this is from a leaked audio, but as the former judge Napolitano said, it is beyond me how the government is going to take that simple, innocent phone call with one sentence in it and turn that into a criminal conspiracy. Now, while the specifics are unknown, it's said that 10 indictments have been filed against individuals, but the one against Donald Trump was released before the jury signed off on it. Four prosecutions against Donald Trump are using novel and untested legal theories. In a statement after the Georgia indictment, 
Donald Trump made the point that days before Trump announced his 2024 presidential campaign, Joe Biden declared on national TV that serious efforts would be taken to stop Trump from being able to, quote, take power again. The highly regarded Republican Senator Ted Cruz has described the latest indictment by a Georgia grand jury as, quote, nakedly political and another attempt at election interference. That's a very good point election interference. So here are the Democrats trying to determine who should or shouldn't run for the presidency. Said Ted Cruz, the target is political. This is not the rule of law. This is not enforcing the law fairly. The Republican Senator Lindsey Graham warned Democrats to quote, be careful what you wish for. Following the Fulton County indictment, he said, are we going to let county prosecutors start prosecuting the president of the United States, the former president of the United States? He said, you're opening up a Pandora's box to the presidency. Well, Trump is right. There are now two levels of justice in the United States. But before we go to Peggy, a couple of things need to be said about this Trump presidency. In his final State of the Union address, that's in 2020, just before the election at the end of the year, Donald Trump made several key points. Under his presidency, 7 million new jobs had been created. The unemployment rate was the lowest in over half a century. This is the bloke we're talking about. This is why they're frightened of him. The average unemployment rate under his administration was lower than that of any administration in the history of America. The unemployment rate for African-Americans, Hispanic-Americans and Asian-Americans reached the lowest levels in history. The unemployment rate for women reached the lowest level in 70 years. The unemployment rate for veterans dropped to a record low. The unemployment rate for disabled Americans reached an all-time low. Now, under the Obama administration, more than 10 million people were added to the food stamp rolls. Under Trump's administration, 7 million Americans came off food stamps and 10 million people were lifted off welfare. In eight years under Obama's presidency, over 300,000 working-aged people dropped out of the workforce. In three years of the Trump administration, 3.5 million working-aged people joined the workforce. And so it goes on. On the other side, compelling evidence from Devin Archer, a former partner of Joe Biden's son, Hunter, suggests that Joe Biden has lied repeatedly about his involvement in Hunter Biden's grimy international business affairs. The Republican James Comer, who's the chairman of the House of Representatives Oversight Committee, has released a transcript of testimony by Devin Archer, a partner of Hunter Biden's, which suggested that Hunter Biden's lucrative position on the board of Burisma might have stemmed from access to his father. Devin Archer claimed, and I quote, Burisma would have gone out of business if it didn't have the Biden family brand attached to it. People would be intimidated to mess with the Bidens legally. Devin Archer said, Hunter Biden, whom Republicans claim was selling access to his father to Chinese and Ukrainian companies, had put Joe Biden on speakerphone about 20 times when in business meetings. Hunter Biden was on $83,000 a month in the employ of Burisma, a Ukrainian energy company, when Hunter Biden had no experience whatsoever in the energy industry. Joe Biden has repeatedly denied any knowledge of his son's dealings, but multi-million dollar payments have been made to Biden family accounts from foreign entities over the years. The Devon Archer evidence was that Burisma had requested Hunter Biden, quote, seek help from DC 
with the company's legal problems, knowing that the Obama administration had significant economic leverage over Kiev. What do we make of this? Each week, Peggy makes sense of it, but it's tough stuff today and she joins me. Peggy, there are plenty of prominent Republicans prepared to step into the ring and defend Donald Trump, the most articulate of them being Ted Cruz, describing the latest indictment from Georgia as nakedly political and another attempt at election interference. How do you see all of these things? <laughs> wow, Ellen, thank you for having me on and thank you for highlighting so many of these important issues that are happening here in America that truly affect the world. And before we go to Georgia, I want to mention another development that came out of the U.S. this past week that maybe had been missed in Australia. And it's that David Weiss, who was the U.S. attorney in Delaware, who has been investigating Hunter Biden, was given an elevation of title and status to special counsel, violating the Department of Justice's own statute, which says that in order for a special counsel to be appointed, they have to be outside of government. Not only is David Weiss not outside of government because he works for the Department of Justice, but he has been investigating in quotes, Hunter Biden for the past five years. He's slow walked the investigation and he is the architect of the sweetheart deal, which the judge just threw out because it was so egregious and outside the bounds of precedent. And so this is something to watch. Republicans have been demanding a special counsel to look into Joe Biden and Hunter Biden and their connection to Chinese business dealings and all the things that you outlaid, but they did not want or expect that it would be David Weiss. And so in the oh, appearance of trying to justify the Republicans and um, develop trust again in the Department of Justice, he's done the exact opposite, Merrick Garland, by appointing David Weiss with these special powers that in essence will block Congress likely. And in the end, will he write a report yeah. which potentially could exonerate the Bidens altogether. Absolutely. Just unbelievable. It is unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, Cruz is right, and Cruz has credibility. Very articulate, very smart, very respected. And Ted Cruz said the timing is nakedly political. Every time more bad news comes out about Hunter Biden and Joe Biden, you can set a stopwatch within hours that some clown goes in and indicts Donald Trump again. Peggy, that seems true. It absolutely is. And, Don, and every time there's an indictment against Donald Trump, Joe Biden conveniently is on vacation. And every time there's a bombshell about Hunter Biden, conveniently, there's another Trump indictment. And what we're seeing out of Georgia is just one more Democrat city that um, they're going after Donald Trump politically, not uh, on, on the basis of law. And we see a new term coming out this week called lawfare, where they're actually using political persecution under the guise of law to go after political oppon opponents. And what we saw out of Georgia was really interesting because in essence, it was 19 people that they indicted on 41 charges. It was 98 pages long. And to your point, you said it adds up to 91 charges against Donald Trump, including racketeering, conspiracy, and false statements. And I would say that those 19 people that are involved, 18 plus Donald Trump, this is being done as a deterrent or a warning, not only to Donald Trump, but to anybody who dare support him, um, support him and defend him in a a rule of law and anybody who will stand with Donald Trump, they're going to go after them as well. And so this really is a deterrent and a warning mm. to your point about the timing of things as well. We look at the, um, 
as we look at Fannie Willis, who has gone after Donald Trump in this way, she sat on this for two years and she did it intentionally to interfere with the election, which ironically is the very thing she's accusing Donald Trump of doing there in Georgia. Yes, I mean, this is this Fannie Willis. She's the district attorney, she's a Democrat. She's been after boasting she was going to get Donald Trump. Just dwell on Georgia for a moment because on each other occasion that I've spoken to Peggy, uh, we argued that Donald Trump, if convicted, say in Washington, won't ever go to jail and he could pardon himself from jail and so on. Now this, this uh, Georgia thing is entirely different. Um, what, what happens if uh, they're determined to find him guilty of something um, and there's a jail term there Am I right in saying, because it's a state issue, that the president can't pardon someone found guilty, say, in Georgia? Am I right on that? You are right. And so the difference in Georgia and in the state of New York is these are state charges, unlike the federal charges coming out of Florida and D.C., where, in theory, Donald Trump could pardon himself if he's reelected president. What we don't see coming out of Georgia, though, is a curiosity for the facts. And we know that this is politically motivated because what Georgia has not decided to do is to look into all the accusations and all the worry about election impropriety. And it's not illegal to question elections. We see that Al Gore did it, Hillary Clinton did it. And even in Georgia, Stacey Abrams, who ran for governor, has Mm. done it extensively. And so it's not illegal to question the election. And what they should be doing is is questioning the election processes, which many were rushed, many were haphazard, and some potentially were illegally implemented some of the rules due to COVID. That's where they should be spending their time and effort looking into, not Donald Trump, who's exposing and questioning all of those improprieties. That's a very, very good point that Peggy makes. I mean, it's not illegal to question her. And indeed, the Democrats did that when Trump won, but way back in 2016. Um, What chance would Trump have of having any kind of objective jury or objective hearing or impartial hearing in Georgia? Well, in Fulton County, I think it's about 24% of that county voted for Donald Trump. And so it will be unlikely that he would get a fair jury. And, you know, he really could have a tainted jury pool as well, because yesterday we saw that the website there in Fulton County at the courthouse uploaded the indictment hours before the grand jury met or voted on it. And so this is Stalin-esque, you know, show me the man and I'll find the crime. Not only is this man not being treated with the respect he deserves as the former president of the United States, but he's not being extended the basic constitutional protections of innocence until proven guilty with the indictment being loaded up into the website before it was even voted upon by the grand jury. Outstanding point. All released, all released before the jury had even voted. And what was released as what was likely to happen to Donald Trump was precisely what the grand jury voted about. And it was released before the grand jury had voted. Ted Cruz said, Peggy, it's the same thing as Alvin Bragg, the wild George Soros partisan in New York. It's the same thing as Attorney General Merrick Garland and Special Counsel Jack Smith. What they want to do, they want a trial, he says, Ted Cruz, to attack Donald Trump. They'd like a trial in September, October next year, right before the election. Peggy, oh dear, I mean, these indictments are all led by Democrats. 
Surely this Republican Senator Lindsey Graham makes a valid point. Are we going to let county prosecutors start prosecuting the President of the United States, the former President of the United States? You open up a Pandora's box to the presidency. You can't blame Republicans in this environment saying, once we get power again, look out, we're going to go after you. You can't blame them, can you? Well, you hope that they'll get a spine. And Lindsey Graham makes a good point. Do we see a city going after the president? Could we see individuals going after the president? I mean, this is preposterous. And what we see on the other side is no appetite to go after Joe Biden, after Hunter Biden. As the mountain of evidence increases, they just are continuing to put Donald Trump under the microscope while ignoring everything that's happening yes. in the Biden world. Well, that's right. I mean, Hillary Clinton has bought into it saying that, quote, the only satisfaction may be that the system is working, justice is being pursued. Now, Hillary Clinton is on dangerous territory here. Peggy, um, what of the Devon Archer testimony that Joe Biden's son, Hunter, was selling access to his father for big money, but the Archer evidence suggests that Joe Biden has lied repeatedly about his son's involvement in his international business affairs. Where's that? Well, Devin Archer's testimony was damning for the Bidens because this is somebody who is not only a close confidant and business partner of Hunter Biden for years, but also was a personal friend of the Bidens. And the information that he offered up in a closed session behind doors in Congress validated what the IRS whistleblowers had said. It validated what Congress is uncovering as far as a paper trail of money. And it completely contradicted everything that Hunter Biden and Joe Biden have been saying. And so so it was very credible. Of course, the Democrats want to ignore it. And it was funny, the Babylon Bee, which is a satirical website here, they'd had a headline this week that said, um, Democrats say it'll take a lot more than, than eyewitness testimony, bank records, audio, video, and complete confession for them to believe Biden did anything wrong. And I, I think it's going to take at least that for mm. the Democrats to Absolutely. start believing, yeah. trusting, and turning on Joe Biden in in justifiable ways. Just before you go, the, the, the first Republican primary debate, debate is scheduled for August 23, and the first Republican primary is next January. As we're talking here today, what do you think all of this means for Donald Trump on both of those dates? Well, Donald Trump has said, you know, every time that they indict him for something, he goes up in the polls and up goes his fundraising. So he said, one more indictment and I think I'll have the nomination wrapped up. Um, Donald Trump has left it very vague as to whether or not he's going to attend the debate. He jokingly said, maybe I'll just sit back and watch and pick my vice president. So we don't know yet whether he's going to be in or out. Um, but, you know, the more the Democrats throw at him, the better he does. And it really looks like now nobody's going to be able to catch him. So that's why the Democrats are really hoping that one or more of these indictments will mm. stick. They're hoping they can run it through the judicial system in a very short time frame so that it will interfere with the election. And the Democrats want to determine the next president of the United States and not trust the American people to do that selection. So just two things. Uh, is there any chance as we speak tonight, any chance that the Republicans might change their candidate? And the second question is, what are the percentages on Biden being moved aside, as the rumours suggest, in favour of Michelle Obama? 
Well, unlike the Democrats who notoriously have um, not listened to their own people and their voters and the Democratic National Committee has selected the candidate, the Republican Party will allow the people to select the candidate. And right now it looks like that candidate will be Donald Trump. Um, the Democrats are in a very different position right now. I think they would like to get rid of Joe Biden, but I think that they will let this situation play out. Um, they will have people waiting on the wings. I don't think it'll be somebody like Michelle. Michelle Obama. I think it'll wind up being probably Gavin Newsom out of California, a Gretchen Whitmer maybe out of Michigan as the vice president. And um, we'll see. Both of them have terrible calling cards of the disasters that their states have been under their leadership. But the Democrats continue to double down on bad policies that harm and make life worse and less safe for the American people. So We'll see what they decide to Good do. Good on you, Peggy. Wonderful stuff. Great insights. Thank you so much. There she is. Of course, Peggy knows the stuff. She worked Thank for Ronald God. Reagan. Knows the inside of the Republican Party, that's for sure. What a mess. But um, I tell you what, he's brave and he won't yield. Trump will not yield. The energy of the man at 77 years of age and the one thing he's got, the smarts. He's a smart bloke. He's a businessman and he's prepared to take them on on the front foot. We need, I think the world needs about 100 Donald Trumps in this current environment. That's Peggy, we'll talk to her next week. Look, before we go, I know my viewers read a lot about Mark Latham, but I can say this to mums and dads. He's the only politician in Australia who fully understands the mess that is modern education and seeks to do something about it. All governments seem to be able to do is give more money. I'm all for the teachers, but in New South Wales, the clamouring for more money is not gonna solve any problem. Mums and dads, I know you want the best for your children. Well, consider this. A survey of more than 38,400 teachers Australia-wide has found that 24% of teachers, that's nearly a quarter of all teachers across all key learning areas, are taking classes in which they hold no specialised qualification. Actually, the 24% is higher in some subjects like mathematics, where one in three high school maths teachers has not received any training in the subject. The rates are higher than one in three for subjects like physics, biology, chemistry, and technology. Now, admittedly, there's a teacher shortage. But why would a man go into teaching these days? A child is crying in the playground. Your instinct is to comfort that child. You are, in fact, in loco parentis, but a teacher dare not touch a weeping child in order to console him or her. Discipline in some classrooms is non-existent. Without discipline, there can be no learning. I've said before that if we want chemistry and maths and biology and technology teachers, indeed, if we want doctors, waive the hex fee. In return, have them indentured to government and send your men and women with qualifications in maths and physics and chemistry to where they are most needed. No hex debt. That is, if you truly believe our children are the future. But there is no future for today's school children if one in three maths teachers has no specific training in the subject. And the situation, as I said, is worse for physics, chemistry, biology and technology. What are we getting for the billions of dollars that are poured into education? Well, I'm sorry to tell you the answer is failure. Our children are being betrayed. That's it for me this week. Look, I hope you've enjoyed the program. Don't forget you can listen to tonight's program on your podcast app from 6am tomorrow. Just search Alan Jones. Thank you for being with ADH. I am Alan Jones. Good night.